Please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. As Pastor Owen mentioned earlier, we're going to do a couple of months' worth of sermons addressing several different passages in the book of Proverbs. This morning we'll be looking at the first seven verses of chapter 1. Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7. Please give your attention to God's word. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing. In righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It was an article that caught my eye the other day. The title of the article was Seven Questions to Ask when you first meet someone, instead of asking them, what do you do? Well, somebody who meets new people all the time, I thought, well, this could be helpful. So I looked at, to see what their seven questions were that are better than what do you do for a living. After reading all seven of them, I said, yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> they were pretty silly, actually. One of the questions was, what superhero power would you choose to have? <laughs> Honestly, can you see me at the door of the church asking that question? <laughs> but really think about it. Would you like to fly? Would you like to have super speed, super strength, invisibility, the ability to teleport or read somebody's mind? I thought, what a silly question. But since my studies and my mind and my heart were focused on the book of Proverbs, I couldn't help but being reminded of the question that God asked Solomon when he became king of Israel. He is a defining moment in his life. His father David had died. He ascends to the throne over not only Israel as a nation, but over God's visible kingdom on earth. And God said to Solomon, ask me for whatever you want. And Solomon wisely asked, to quote him exactly, for a wise and discerning mind that he might rule well. Solomon, from that point on, was greatly blessed to the Lord. Interestingly, the Lord said, because you didn't ask for something selfish, you didn't ask for something material, you didn't ask for something worldly, I'm going to give you long life and prosperity, wealth and honor. But it was his wisdom that he was known for. There's a great passage at the end of 1 Kings chapter 4 where it describes the supernatural, the superhero, superhuman wisdom that Solomon possessed. At beginning in verse 29 of 1 Kings 4, it says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. 
so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Well, one of the examples of the wisdom of Solomon is that he gathered the proverbs, all these great proverbs. He gathered them together and passed them on throughout thousands of years to us, that we might be the beneficiaries of the wisdom of Solomon. Verse 1 says, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now understand that Solomon was the primary author. He wrote most of these Proverbs, or most of these passages in Proverbs. But there are also a few passages from other wise men that he collected and, and included in this package. So it's kind of like the book of Psalms. We call them the Psalms of David. David wrote most of them, but there were many that were not written by David as well. The first seven verses that we read a moment ago are an introduction to the whole book. And the purpose of those verses is to whet our appetite for the wisdom that we know we need, but we don't know how to get. Because wisdom is the key to making all the good decisions you need to make in life. From the moment you wake up every morning, your life is an end endless sequence of choices you have to make. Am I going to hit that snooze button one more time? What am I going to have for breakfast? What should I make for lunch? What's the best route to work or the class? What thing on my to-do list should I tackle first? Someone, some expert on the internet, I have no idea who, but somebody with some credibility figured out that we make, on average, 35,000 decisions per day. 35,000. Somebody after the first service, one of the husbands after the first service says, well, I make a lot less now than I did before I was married. But <laughs> be that as it may, life as a long series of choices and decisions is really, isn't that, if you know this, the classic story of Pilgrim's Progress, of John Bunyan wrote the great story of Christian on his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And in that story, he presents discipleship as a path or a long linear series of decisions, choices to get to the destination that he is called to. He had to travel on the king's highway which was a narrow road, the only road to walk to the celestial city. And along the way, he was tempted to wander off the path time and time again. He was distracted by many different things. But the key to successfully completing his journey was making the right choices to stay on that narrow path of the king's highway to the celestial city. Success in life means making a long series of right choices. Before we became Christians, when we were living in the darkness of the depravity that we were born into, all of our decisions at the very core, at the very root of all those decisions was one question. What's best for me? What's going to give me the most pleasure in life? What's going to, to meet my needs? But by God's grace, 
if your heart was changed by Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, he's given you a new heart and your new heart now seeks to serve others and to glorify God. But still, the decisions are hard, aren't they? Every moment of every day, the decisions can be very, very difficult. The Word of God does give us clear instructions. Some things are pretty black and white. Don't worship idols. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Give to the poor. Forgive others. But how do we make decisions in the details? The principles of Scripture are clear, but how do we make decisions about all these different little situations and circumstances that we face in any given day? I'm sure many of you are facing, some of you are facing big decisions you have to make about your job, about your marriage, about your education, about your finances, about your parenting. And you've been praying and you've been wishing that God would just write the answer in the sky. Wouldn't it be nice if you just woke up in the morning and there was the answer you needed to whatever big decision you have to make written right in the sky for you? Or at the very least, just an audible voice. God would speak to you and say, this is what you should do. But that's not how God leads us. That's not his normal way of guiding his children through this life and the decision that we have to make. I'm sure we've all wondered, why isn't God more like Siri or Alexa? You know, God, tell me what to do right now. I want to make, you know, we're Christians. We're disciples of Christ. We want to do his will. We want to do what he wants us to do. We want to make good choices. Why doesn't he just tell us in some of these complicated situations? And sometimes his silence in those moments makes us doubt either his existence or his care for us. Well, the book of Proverbs is given to us to show us that the Lord wants us to grow in wisdom. He doesn't want to just give us the answers to every little situation in life. He wants us to grow in wisdom, in maturity, in faith, so that we will think like he thinks. And if we think like God thinks, and our hearts desire the things that God wants, then we will make good choices in life. I mean, parents, think about it. When a child comes to you with their math problem, and they say, I can't figure this out. Help me, Mom. Help me, Dad. It wouldn't be good parenting to figure it out and then tell them what the answer is, would it? You help them figure out how to arrive at the right answer. And God is a good father. He wants to teach us wisdom. He wants to show us how to make right choices in life. It comes from the wisdom from above. And so as we look at chapter 1, it's wise that Solomon, in beginning this book about wisdom, he defines what wisdom is. Because if somebody asks you, somebody stops you on the street and says, what is wisdom, how would you answer? It's not an easy question to answer, is it? It's not even an easy question for wise Solomon to answer. He takes several verses and uses many different words in order to communicate what wisdom is. Matter of fact, what you get here in the first several verses of chapter 1 is a stack of synonyms in the original Hebrew. Solomon would have communicated this in Hebrew, and in the original Hebrew, the, the words that we translate into English, they all show some different aspect of what wisdom is. And so we're going to look at several of these words that he uses to help us begin to get an understanding of what wisdom is as the total package. 
Because you can't really answer the question, what is wisdom, with, with a word, a, a phrase, or even a few sentences. The first word that he uses is, it's translated here, instruction. And in the original Hebrew, it has the connotation of discipline or correction. In other words, you try, you make a decision, you go in a direction, and you get corrected, you get disciplined, and taught there's a better way. And so that first word, instruction, has that connotation of, of a good teacher who's disciplined you through making mistakes and errors to know the right way to go. That's an aspect of wisdom. Wisdom comes through the school of hard knocks in many ways. And one of the first things that you need to learn in order to have true wisdom from above is that you need to have a humble and teachable heart. The military understands this. I was, never, I was never in the military. I never served. But I've heard stories about boot camp. And my understanding is that boot camp, one of the main purposes of boot camp when you first go into the military is to kind of break that stubborn will that we all have and teach you to submit to authority. Because they can't teach you anything until you're first humble enough and submissive enough to listen and to learn to be teachable. And so the word instruction carries that idea of correction, discipline, a breaking of our stubborn, rebellious will so that we are humble and teachable. The second word is insight, or this, and there's actually a similar Hebrew word in the next phrase, wise dealing. Insight and wise dealing. If you just look at the word insight, it helps you to see what the word means in the original language. To have insight is to see in, to see into something. In other words, the ability to look below the surface. Be able to look below the surface in your dealings with other people. Not just react to what you see on the surface, but look deeper, look into that. Or circumstances, situations, a problem. The ability to look below the surface and see the real issues. That's what insight is. The ability to read people well, or to read your circumstances well, so that you respond with good choices and good decisions. I'm a Philadelphia 76er basketball fan, and I've uh, been enjoying watching them in the playoffs. One of the most fascinating players to me is Ben Simmons, who plays for the Sixers. And he's a superstar, by most people's estimation. But it's interesting because Ben Simmons doesn't shoot a jump shot very well. And he absolutely stinks at shooting foul shots. How does a guy get to be a superstar when he can't shoot a jump shot very well and he can't shoot foul shots? It's because they, he has what they say is basketball smarts. He understands the game at a level deeper than most players. He reads a defense really well. He has the insight to be able to... to <laughs> since he can't shoot a jump shot, to sh shoot layups and dunk the ball, you know? He still scores his points, but he does it because he's, he's able to read the situation well and respond and make good choices at a level that other players can't do it. That's why he's, he's, he's one of the best defensive players in the, in the league, because he reads other players well. He has those basketball smarts. It's similar to the skill that we're talking about, but we're talking about with... Wisdom from above, we're talking about supernatural insight that is given as a gift from the Lord into situations and people so that you read the room well, 
so that you read your circumstances, so that you read other people well, so that you make good choices. Insight. The third word is prudence. Prudence in verse 4, beginning of verse 4. Prudence, prudence in the original language carries the idea of shrewdness or cleverness. Cleverness. The idea of being a cunning person. Sometimes we use those words in a negative sense, but Scripture also uses those words in a very positive sense. And it relates to wisdom. It's the ability to look down the road and see the consequences of choices. To be able to see the big picture. It's kind of like if life is a maze, and we're just rats in the maze, the ability, so to speak, to kind of Elevate yourself above the maze and see how the maze works, to see what the effect of certain choices are going to be so that you can navigate the maze well. That's prudence. My oldest son, I taught him to play chess when he was about eight years old. By the time he was 10, I stopped playing him because he beat me every time. Because he had an ability to think three or four moves ahead. I have the only, only the ability to think of one move ahead. It was an incredible advantage in the game of chess to be able to think three or four moves ahead and see what the board's going to look like a few moves down the road. But in a sense, that's what prudence is. That's what this supernatural wisdom is, is the ability to see the effect of choices that you and other people make in a way that you make good decisions. The fool... And we're going to talk more in coming weeks about the difference between the wise person and the fool. That's the distinction that Scripture makes. Everybody's either wise in the sight of the Lord or they're fools in the sight of the Lord. The fool, according to Psalm 14, says in his heart there is no God. And the fool, when it comes to this idea of prudence and wisdom, the fool is constantly saying, how did I get here? My life is broken. My life is messed up. How did I get here? Because they don't have prudence from the Lord. They don't have that kind of wisdom. Or worse, they get angry at God for the circumstances that they're in, even though they've brought it upon themselves. The fourth word is the word knowledge at the end of verse 4. Again, in the original language, knowledge is what we would tend to call knowledge, a very similar meaning to the word we would have, which is it's, it's knowing truth, knowing reality knowing things that are factual. Wisdom is more than knowledge, but it's not less than knowledge. And you can't skip over knowledge to get to wisdom. You need knowledge in order to be wise, but having knowledge in and of itself is not enough to be wise. But knowledge is an important part of being wise. Knowledge of the truth is the raw material that is molded into wisdom. And wisdom, to look at it from the other side, wisdom is knowledge that is applied skillfully to your unique life and your unique circumstances. We often refer to the Bible as being like an owner's manual to us, an owner's manual to life. My wife and I bought bicycles uh, a few months ago, and they're kind of complicated. They're more modern versions of bicycles. We weren't familiar with this kind, but it looked like a bike. It seemed to ride like a bike, so I just jumped on and started riding it. I would have been a lot wiser to st stop and read the owner's manual before I started riding the bike. But so, much, so many of us treat life like that. 
You know, how many, how many of you, when you get a new gadget for Christmas, actually sit down and read through the owner's manual like they carefully tell you to do? Very few of us do that, and then we end up having to go back and consult the owner's manual when we make all the mistakes and break something. And so many of us treat life like that. God has given us the basic principles and instructions. Everything we need for faith and life is in this book. And we tend to just go out and experience it and make our mistakes. So knowledge is essential for wisdom. You need knowledge in order to have wisdom, but wisdom is more than knowledge. Joshua chapter 1, God says through Moses to Joshua, as he takes over as the leader of God's people, he says this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will be able to make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. You must have the knowledge of the truth of the scriptures in order to be wise. The fifth word is at the end of verse four, the word discretion. Wisdom is in one form or one aspect of wisdom is discretion. That in the original language, the word means the ability to see through deception and error. The ability to see through deception and error. The ability to see the difference between sin and righteousness. The ability to see in between, to discern between right and wrong. Good and wicked. In other words, wisdom has a very important ethical, moral component to it. You must know what is right, what is true, what is good, what is righteous. That's important to wisdom. In verse 3, it says that wisdom gives us an understanding of righteousness, justice, and equity. So, you put all these words together. Again, Solomon is using several different words with several different aspects or angles on what wisdom is. You put them all together and you start to see the package. What a glorious, beautiful thing wisdom is as a gift from God. I'm going to give you a definition. I actually have given this to you, I think, a few weeks ago. Based on a lifetime off and on of studying the book of Proverbs, this is the definition of wisdom that I've come up with. We'll see if it's helpful to you. Wisdom is skill in applying God's word to your circumstances so that you make good choices that lead to God-honoring results. Wisdom is skill in applying God's word to your circumstances so that you make good choices that lead to God-honoring results. Hopefully you see how all of those words play into that definition. Or as one commentator put it more in a more pithy way, it's skill in the art of godly living. I'm sometimes fascinated by the discussion. Psych psychology people, my, my undergrad degree was in psychology, and so I often will read articles just to kind of just be interested in what's going on in that field. And they, they play with this idea. See, the world, there is kind of a natural wisdom. There's a common grace wisdom that is out there in the world that people that don't believe have. There's a certain level of it. It's not the same supernatural wisdom that comes with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the wisdom from above is what we're talking about. But there is a wisdom of the world, and there's some aspects of truth in, in the thinking of secular psychology. And they talk about, it's interesting, they try to get a handle on this because they'll talk about, well, we used to measure people's wisdom by their IQ, their intelligence quotient. 
In other words, the more intelligent you were, the wiser you were. But, but obviously you find out her that's not true. There are many, many intelligent people that are not wise. And so obviously intelligence doesn't equal wisdom. They figured that out. So then they start about talking about EQ, the emotional quotient, or the emotional intelligence. And I, I looked up the definition on that. It's the emotional quotient or emotional intelligence is defined as the ability to perceive, control, and evaluate your emotions. And it includes such valuable traits as self-control, discipline, persistence, and empathy. You see what they're doing there? They're trying to add to intelligence, which is the knowledge element, add to it emotional intelligence. So, and that's getting at that idea that you're able to read the, the room, you're able to read people, you're able to read yourself and your circumstances well, so that you respond in your whole being, in your emotions and your thinking, in a wise way. And then there's some psychologists who talk about an MQ, which stands for the moral quotient. And so they say that that relates to a person's integrity or responsibility or ability to forgive. And so they're adding a moral element. See what the world, they're, they're trying to get at what wisdom is, and they're getting a lot of it, but they're missing the supernatural element of it, the work of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the scriptures. And so if you add the spiritual quotient, the SQ, then maybe you get the whole picture, that this is a superhuman or a superhero wisdom that comes from above, which gets us to the question, what's the source of wisdom? And that's verse 7. Verse 7 is really the theme of the book of Proverbs. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, you're going to see this in Proverbs where the second phrase clarifies the first phrase. And so when it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it's not talking about knowledge in a limited sense, it's talking about knowledge as an aspect of wisdom. And so he's really saying that the fear of the Lord, as he'll say later, is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, if life is a path of a long series of choices, then the fear of the Lord is the gate to that path. But it's more than the gate. Christian and the story of Pilgrim's Progress had to go through the wicket gate, not the wicked, but the wicket gate, in order to get on the king's highway. But he needed wisdom to stay on the highway. And so the fear of the Lord is what gets you onto the highway and it keeps you on the highway. Well, what is the fear of the Lord? We always kind of squirm when somebody talks about the fear of the Lord, don't we? Because why, do, why would we fear God? As Christians, as disciples of Jesus Christ, why would you fear God? What's that fear? Well, the best way that I've ever explained, and I'm sure if you've been here very long, you've heard me use this analogy, and I've never come up with a better one, so I keep using it. The idea of, of the fear of the Lord, the best experience I had in an in earthly sense of what that was like, is the first time I went to look at Niagara Falls. We walked down the river, and it was just a big river, but a normal river. We walked down the river, and we got to this place, and all of a sudden, you could see the falls in just a moment. It was like a sudden revelation of the falls. And I'll never forget my visceral reaction to that moment. My chest constricted. I mean, it was a, it was a physiological reaction of fear. And my knees got weak in that moment. And I was just overwhelmed with this emotion of fear because the falls were so big so powerful and so beautiful. 
beyond anything that I had seen like that in my life. I was in awe. And so when we talk about the fear of the Lord, it's that emotion of awe. As you stand in the presence of something or someone who is big and powerful and beautiful beyond your comprehension. It's the fear of the Lord. He is more holy than we can comprehend. He is more infinite than we can comprehend. He is more sovereign than we can comprehend. He is more wise than we can comprehend. And the great men of church history have used a Latin phrase to describe what it means to live in the fear of the Lord. They use the phrase quorum Dio, which means living before the face of God. Living in a continual awareness that you walk, you serve, you do everything in life in the face of this awesome God. It's what David was trying to describe in Psalm 139 when he wrote this. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's beyond my comprehension. To live in the fear of the Lord. You know, that's one of the beautiful things about the book of Proverbs. What the book of Proverbs is going to teach us is that God cares about the little things of life as well as the great things. There's one proverb in chapter 27, verse 14. It says, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as a cursing. See, God cares about how you speak to your neighbor early in the morning, whether you speak too loudly to him or not. This is the kind of wisdom that you find in Proverbs that goes to the tiniest details of life because God is aware of your thoughts, your words, and everything you do, every choice that you make. But there's another element to this fear of the Lord because if it wasn't for grace the fear of the Lord would cause us to die in a moment of terror, to stand in the presence of a God this holy and this powerful and this sovereign. There must be mercy. There must be grace because we, what the scriptures teach us is that we live in the presence of a God who loves us beyond what we can comprehend, who has grace towards us beyond what we can comprehend. We have four pets in our house, a dog, a cat, and two rabbits. And I'd never had rabbits my entire life until last year. It was our COVID uh, moment of insanity to go get a couple of rabbits. In the boredom of being shut up in our house, we felt we needed you know, somebody to take care of. So we got a couple of rabbits. And I'm a dog person. My dog and I are best buddies. My dog goes everywhere with me. He trusts me implicitly. We just have this really tight, intimate relationship. Rabbits aren't like that. <laughs> my, my dog loves to be set by my side for me to pet him. My rabbits will deign to allow me to pet them if I'm feeding them. And as soon as the food's gone, they're gone. And there just isn't that relationship. And it's because 
they fear me. There's still a fear of me that Dash, my dog, doesn't have. And I want to say to them, listen, I'm the one who feeds you. Well, my wife's the one who feeds you. My, you know, we're the ones who give you food and water. We're the ones who protect you. We're the ones who take you to the vet. We're the ones who will do anything to help you. But they don't believe that. They don't trust that we have a love for them beyond what they can comprehend. You see, what I'm saying is, that's why living in the face of this awesome God, we need to know that he loves us and accepts us unconditionally. And he wants only what's best for us. Well, how do we know that? Well, that's where we get to our last point, which is wisdom personified. Solomon was the wisest man in the world up until Jesus Christ was born. But Solomon went astray, didn't he? He wandered off that narrow king's highway, didn't he? Solomon loved many women, lusted after many women, had many, many, many wives and concubines. And that sin led him into the sin of idolatry, the most heinous of foolish sins. How could the wisest man in the world make such mistakes? Well, he was a depraved sinner like you and me. The message is that wisdom alone can't save us. Wisdom alone is not enough to save us. If Solomon needed a savior, so do you and I. But the good news is, the good news of scripture, of all of scripture, is in John chapter one. John calls Jesus logos, which was the Greek word. It was a, it was a very well-known concept in Greek philosophy that the logos was the universal principle of reason, the universal principle of maybe what we might call least aspects of wisdom. And so John says, the Logos, writing in Greek, the Logos existed before everything was created. The Logos was with God. The Logos was, was God. And the Word became flesh. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ became wisdom incarnate. The very wisdom of God, this incomprehensible wisdom of God became flesh and dwelt in our midst. At the age of 12, he was confounding the experts in the, in the temple, the experts in the law, the experts in the Old Testament scriptures. He was confounding them with his wisdom and understanding of those scriptures. Throughout his ministry, people kept saying, where does this man get this wisdom? He teaches like no other teachers we've ever had. And Jesus made a dramatic, really incredible statement about his teaching at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Hear what he's saying. My words are the dividing point of all humanity. If you build your life upon what I have taught you, the wisdom that I have given to you, then your life will stand. If you do not build your life on what I have taught, then you will be lost. He is wisdom incarnate. When he stood on trial before the religious and political leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the scribes, 
the ones who it says in Scripture despised wisdom. Jesus compared himself in, rea in reaction to their rejection of him, their foolish rejection of him. He responded by saying, the queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Matthew 12, 42. And that is why Paul prayed for the church, for you and me, for all believers to reach, quote, the, all the riches of the full assurance of the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3. If life is a journey, if it's a long series of 35,000 choices a day to get to where you're going, then the message of Proverbs and of all the scripture is you need Jesus Christ. You need Jesus Christ to find the entrance to the narrow way. You need Jesus Christ to stay on the narrow way once you're on it. Jesus said that he is both the gate and the door to life, to wisdom, to knowing God. John chapter 10, verse 7, I am the door, he said. John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, of all those choices that you have made in your life, you have made a ton of foolish ones. Matter of fact, I would venture to say, if you look at your life as a whole, you have made many more foolish choices than wise choices from God's perspective. And understand that foolish choices are sin that must be paid for because God is holy beyond our comprehension. And Jesus became flesh. The word became flesh. Wisdom became flesh so that he could live a life of perfect wisdom, walk perfectly in the fear of the Lord, and then offer up that perfect life of wisdom as a sacrifice in place of you and me. He died for all of your foolish choices, past, present, and future. He died for them all so that they'd be fully punished and God's holiness and wrath would be satisfied. But then God raised him from the dead and he walked out of, and the tomb is empty, having conquered sin and death. And he offers the gift of forgiveness to anyone who will believe in him. In that great story of Pilgrim's Progress, after entering on to the king's highway, the very first place he goes is to the cross. And as he kneels at the foot of the cross, this heavy, heavy, heavy burden that he had carried that weighed him down, the guilt, the shame of his foolishness and sin, it rolled off his back as he knelt at the cross and it rolled down the hill and into the empty tomb not to be seen again. You see, that's why we need Jesus in order to be wise. And that's going to be the message of Scripture. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, we live in an upside-down world. The kingdom of God is upside down to the values of this world. What's folly to them is wisdom to us. What's wisdom to us is folly to them. With advances in technology come more and more choices. And as we get more and more choices, we need to make wise choices. Let me simplify your life. There are only two paths to take, wisdom or folly. Which one are you on?
And there are only two kinds of people in the world, only two kinds of sinners, those who are being saved by grace through the work of Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, and those who are lost in their foolishness. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God, and he has called us to his table. So in a moment, we're going to gather at his table to celebrate his grace, that we might be given grace to have more wisdom before him. Let's pray. Father, this is a very confusing world. There are so many voices shouting at us what we should think, what choices we should make, what direction we should go. But Lord, your word is truth. To whom else shall we go? Everything we need to know is given to us by your word and by your spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that you will meet with us at your table here this morning, that you will give us through the observance of the bread and the cup more grace, more wisdom, more faith, more maturity, that we might make choices that please you and advance your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.